Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum Book Club, we'll talk with writer C. Pam Zhang and a panel of guests about Zhang's debut novel, How Much of These Hills is Gold, which is set in the waning days of the gold rush and follows two penniless siblings who are determined to find a proper place to bury their father. As orphans, they must ultimately eke out an existence in the punishing cultural and physical landscape of Northern California. The novel explores grief, gender identity, and what makes a home a home. Forum Book Club starts right after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome to our book club series, where we dive into a book by a California author. This month's pick is How Much of These Hills is Gold, the debut novel by C. Pam Zhang. It's set in the Northern California hills after the peak of the gold rush. And the book opens with two adolescent siblings, Lucy and Sam, discovering their father, Ba, has died in the night. Though penniless and now orphaned, they're determined to give him a proper burial, which, according to their long-gone mother, means placing silver dollars on the eyes of the dead. Joining me now is writer C. Pam Zhang. Thank you so much for joining us, Pam. Thank you for having me today, Mina. I'm so excited to be part of this conversation. Well, we're excited to have you. And you have said that every piece of fiction has first come to you as an image. What did you see that set you on the journey of writing this book? I saw the image of Golden Hills, um, dry dust, these two children on the run. And, you know, this image came to me when I was living very far from California. I was living in Bangkok um, for this strange uh, intermediary year of my life. And in some ways, I, I feel that this image in this book is a kind of haunting of California, of the West and, you know, of, of America. What what drew you to the landscape? And it, it's at a very dry time of the year, as I understand it. Is it partly that you had lived for a time in Salinas? Yeah, I did live for a period of time in Salinas, and that was on my mind. I think that what was also on my mind was, you know, I think that I started writing this book in maybe 2015. And, uh, you know, don't quote me on this, but this was maybe the, the first of those um, years of successive wildfires that have now become a fixture of California seasons and certainly 
there was there was a lot about the landscape about what sort of human greed has done to the landscape how we have literally warped um, and reshaped the space around us and also our own psychic space i'm also fascinated by the fact that you wanted to do this in the period of the gold rush and and set it in the american in american west because i i wonder what you associate with this period that made it a time that you wanted to set this story? Uh, well, first of all, I still sometimes have no idea why I picked the gold rush. I hadn't <laughs> been writing hist- <laughs> I hadn't been writing historical fiction, and it sort of like smacked me in the face, and I, I couldn't tell why I was doing it at first. But I think when I sort of reached back, what it was was I had just spent a number of years working in the tech industry in San Francisco in a startup as a copywriter, and. Um, you know, there was this whole dream of sort of go west young man or young woman in my case and make a fortune for yourself. You know, there are sort of riches, millions waiting around the corner as long as you sort of dream big enough, try hard enough. And really, I think the that tech boom is one, the modern day gold rush, and two, that the gold rush has always been this like perfect, shiny and also profoundly problematic emblem of the American dream. How is it problematic? Well, I think that if you just scratch even, you know, a millimeter below the surface of that, of that promise of the pull yourself by your bootstraps, everyone has equal opportunity. We just know that that is a lie. There's so many systemic failures um, that put barriers in front of any number of marginalized population from immigrants to black men in America to native people to women to you know I could go on and on and on Um, yeah and I think that's something that we've all many some of us have known for a long time and I think a greater proportion of Americans have come to realize sort of the, the failures of that dream and of that system during this past year of the pandemic. Well, well, speaking of that, it reminds me a lot of this sentence in your book where you really do, it feels like directly indict the American dream where you say, like thousands of others, he thought that the yellow grass of this land, its coin bright gleam in the sun, promised even brighter rewards. It's a beautiful sentence, and I would love to have you, um, Pam Zhang, read from your book. And I understand that you have picked a passage, and I'm wondering if you could set it up for us a little bit. Yeah, of course. So um, thank you for, I, I, I love that sentence too. And <laughs> I'm going to I read a passage that includes that sentence. It's from the very first chapter of the book. And what has happened so far is that these two siblings, Lucy and Sam, young children, have woken up and discovered that their father has died on the night. And there's always been sort of some tension between them and the white townsfolk. And there's an incident with a gun and the two of them are suddenly forced to flee Um, flee their hometown. What could almost make a girl laugh is how Ba came to these hills to be a prospector. Like thousands of others, he thought the yellow grass of this land, its coin bright gleam in the sun, promised even brighter rewards. But none of those who came to dig the West reckoned on the land's parched thirst, on how it drank their sweat and strength. None of them reckoned on its stinginess. Most came too late. The riches had been dug up, dried out. The streams bore no gold. The soil bore no crops. Instead, they found a far duller prize locked within the hills. Coal. A man couldn't grow rich on coal. 
or use it to feed his eyes and imagination. Though it could feed his family in a way, weaveled meal and scraps of meat until his wife, wearied out by dreaming, died delivering a son. Then the cost of her feed could be diverted into a man's drink. Months of hope and savings amounting to this, a bottle of whiskey, two graves dug where they wouldn't be found. What could almost make a girl laugh is that Bob brought them here to strike it rich and now they'd kill for two silver dollars. And I'll end there. That's writer Si Pam Jung reading from her book, How Much of These Hills is Gold? And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. If you've read this book, tell us what has stayed with you from it, what struck you about it, what questions do you have about it? Perhaps there's a character or scene that stood out for you. You can always call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. I'd like to bring in our book club panel now. And uh, Mimi Locke is the author of Last of Her Name, published by Kaya Press. Mimi Locke, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Tom Lin, author of The Thousand Crimes of Ming Su, a recently published Western that has a Chinese gunslinger for protagonist. Tom Lin, really glad to have you on as well. Thank you so much for having me as well. Happy to be here. Also, Meili Chai is with us, Associate Professor of Creative Writing at San Francisco State University and author of the short story collection, Useful Phrases for Immigrants, which won the 2019 American Book Award. Meili Chai, glad to have you as well. Thank you so much, Mina. I'm so happy to talk about how much of these hills is gold. I love this book. I've taught this in my classes at San Francisco State. My students love this book. Oh, wow. Well, that's that's so great. And what I love is that you and Tom and Mimi all have mentioned in some form how great this book is and how great it is to have a novel that shows the American West through the eyes of ethnically Chinese characters, because it's a lens that we don't often get to see this period through. And Meili Chai, I'll start with you. What do you make of that absence? Oh, it's been a deliberate erasure. Um, I was just looking at the Golden Spike website, which is maintained by the um, National Park Service, which is, you know, a branch of the, it's part of the government. It's funded by the government. Um, and they still center that famous photograph of the Golden Spike handshake, um, which was which was staged at the end of the building of the Transcontinental Railroad and the Chinese railroad workers were deliberately excluded from the photograph. So we see throughout American history, the Chinese have been excluded from these really significant events that Chinese paid um, you know, a huge price. They did all the work, tens of thousands were there and then they're written out of the history, literally removed from the official photograph. So I love this book and the way it centers a Chinese family and reinserts um, a Chinese presence into American Western history. Tomlin, what about you and your reaction? I know to some extent you've had some similar thoughts as Mei Li about erasure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I, I think you're absolutely right, Mei Li, in, in that it's been you know it hasn't been a forgetting, but rather deliberate um, erasure. Um, and I think part of that is because the history of the American West is really the story that we tell ourselves as a country for um, not not only for how we came to dominate, you know, between these two oceans, but actually um, why we ought to have done so. It becomes a normative story. And so for that reason, I think um, it's always been in the interest of the people in power to kind of protect their own legacy 
and to, to stake their claim. And I think this also goes back to what um, Pam was saying as well about, about the way that, um, you know, the, the pull yourself up by your bootstraps is, is sort of a lie, because it, it would seem that the thing in this country to, to elevate you would be labor. And, you know, Lord knows that the Chinese laborers who worked on the railroad did plenty of that. But what ultimately gets remembered is not labor, but rather power and capital. And I think those are two themes that kind of intersect a lot, especially with the gold rush, you know, gold being as, you know, the, the kind of symbol of, of money itself. Um, and to kind of have it all working together in, in this book is, is really incredible. That's, that's so interesting, Mimi Locke. It's true that there are so many books, films, cultural references about the American West. And you hear about, I guess, the people who invested a lot of capital in it way more than you hear about the people who did the work, as Tom Lin is saying, your reactions, yeah. Well, as you can probably tell from my accent, I didn't grow up um, in America. I grew up in the UK, and I can confirm that all of the all of the movies that I watched about the American <laughs> West didn't feature a single Chinese actor um, or character. And um, and I'll just um, I'll just second and third what Maylee and Tom and. Um, Pam have already said about that. And uh, I think that by centering this Chinese experience in a traditionally um, uh, uh, American myth, uh, it's, it requires the decentering of the dominant narrative. And I think that this book does it really beautifully, really elegantly. And it's, um, it's ultimately a very subversive book, but without that capital S uh, emblazoned all over it, um, not only in the way it, it handles and uh, trains the lens on a different uh, experience and a different subject, for lack of a better word, but also narratively subversive as well. Yes, that's such a great point, and I'd love to dig into that more after the break. We're talking about how much of these hills is gold with a panel of guests and with its author, C. Pam Zhang. You, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. If you've read the book, share your thoughts. Curious also how you were taught about the gold rush and Chinese immigration to California and Chinese contribution. Call us 866-733-6786 with your thoughts, 866-733-6786. More after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. It's Forum Book Club, and we're talking about this month's selection, How Much of These Hills is Gold. We're joined by author C. Pam Zhang, Tom Lin, author of The Thousand Crimes of Ming Su, Mimi Locke, author of Last of Her Name, also the founding director and executive editor of Voice of Witness, a nonprofit that amplifies marginalized voices through a book series. Mei Li Chai is also with us, associate professor of creative writing at San Francisco State University and author of the short story collection Useful Phrases for Immigrants, which won the 2019 American Book Award. You, our listeners, are also joining the conversation with your thoughts and questions about the book. If you've read it, if there's a scene or even a line that stood out to you, let us know. 
How were you taught about the gold rush and Chinese immigration? What myths about the period have you noticed still persist? Or how has the lack of representation in history or literature affected you? 866-733-6786 is the number to call. 866-733-6786. Our email address is forum at kqed.org. And you can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Pam Zhang, one of the things that... uh, I notice is that it's not like you actually set out to write a book, like a historical fiction book about this period. You alluded to that earlier. How did you navigate that? How did you navigate um, the historical research piece of this and, and when to let that enter into the story? Yeah, it's such a tricky question and I think artistically such an interesting one. Well, I I first of all have to say, and I feel like I have to say this to remind listeners, but also to remind myself oftentimes and to remind students of writing that I've taught, that fiction writers and historians have very, very different jobs in, in this context. So, you know, I went through the California public high school system. And so I had this foundational knowledge about the presence of um, Chinese laborers during this period in history. I had these images of the West I had grown up with, but I had to sort of put the facts out of my head at the very beginning of the writing process in order to let sort of the emotions of the characters and sort of the, the, I guess, the emotional authenticity of that story truly come to life. And the historical research I sort of let in in later stages to like fact check, to verify, to decide where I wanted to, um, you know, adhere to, but also depart from history, because I think something that I became deeply aware of, as, uh, you know, so many of the others on this call have, have mentioned, is that, you know, history is a story. History is a story written by those in power. History has deliberately erased um, so many people. And so while historians should still work to try to uncover the lost stories of the marginalized, there is a limit to that. And I think it's in that, in those cracks of history that a fiction writer comes in. We have our own kinds of tools, which are not, you know, um, archival records necessarily or, or archeological tools, but the tools of craft, of empathy and imagination to try to give some of these lost stories a kind of a second life on the on the page. Mm. I- I'm curious, Maylee, how, the sort of absence of the Chinese experience and the racism and discrimination that the characters experience in the book, how you see that connecting to their search for home, for belonging, which is such a central theme of how much of these tells us gold is this search to belong in this, in this sort of disconnected space, this space that is sort of insisting on having its way with you. I'm curious how you saw it, how you saw Sam and Lucy searching to belong. Well, I love what Pam said about this being the emotional core of the book. It's not about, you know, the historical record, it's finding the emotions. And this is what I found when I was teaching this book that the students relate to so much, right? The sibling relationship, the sense of longing, the sense for wanting to belong, to see yourself is as someone who belongs and that's why we go into creative writing to tell these stories if we were already content we wouldn't do it and so I felt like this book resonated with so many different kinds of people um, from different kinds of backgrounds because they felt that same sense of longing they want to be you know part of a community 
and they don't, you know, and, and so many of our communities are continually not just erased, but dehumanized. We're going through this, you know, way, so, so many waves of anti-Asian violence right now. Um, now there's a resurgence of Islamophobia. There's the continual kind of war against women and against LGBTQ people in, you know, the United States and the world. And this book feels so welcoming to all of these perspectives and all of our sense of longing and this desire to be seen, to be loved, and to have a home. Yes, it feels like for Lucy, that has a lot to do with being in this space. And she sort of almost experiments with adhering to whiteness to try to get there. Lucy is the character that, you know, the school system tells you to be, right? To assimilate, to listen to the teacher, to follow the rules. It's She's the model minority myth. And so it's really fascinating to see her journey in this book. Um, whereas Sam is the sibling. I think Sam is the hero that we've all been waiting for and just didn't know. Thank you, Pam, for creating Sam. Um, <laughs> Sam is awesome. And I won't say anything more because I don't want to give anything away, but Sam is that stranger who literally comes into town and um, sweeps someone off their feet and has been, you know, wrangling up the, the indigenous and the other um, outcasts and, and um, fighting back. Sam is awesome. Yeah, Sam, Sam really sort of rejects this whole adherence that Lucy is so hungry for, at least at some point in the book. Well, this listener writes, I read the entire Little House on the Prairie books as a kid, and at one point I'm embarrassed to admit wore bonnets to school because I loved it so much. But as an Asian woman, I never saw myself in the books I read. Having read Zhang's book, I feel seen beyond its gorgeous and lyrical text, seeing someone like myself as a protagonist and not a marginal, stereotyped character is thrilling. Pam, were you a fan of The Little House on the Prairie books as well? Oh, definitely. And I, I completely understand the bonnet fantasy. <laughs> In fact, you know, I think that some, in some ways, perhaps Little House is the greatest literary, direct literary influence um, on this book in terms of theme, because I actually had these fantasies as a little kid of, you know, being transported back in time and being able to be best friends with the, with the girls in the Little House series. And I think my, one of my many rude moments of awakening um, into sort of the reality of, of this period of time and of American history was realizing that if I were indeed transported, those girls wouldn't be my friends. Um, they would look at me as an absolute weirdo and their mother was actually like pretty racist and classist and, and really problematic. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. Well, let me go to call a Roberto in South San Francisco. Hi, Roberto. Hi, good morning. Thanks uh, for the conversation. Um, with with regards to your question about how we learn about the gold rush, um, you know, aside from the stereotypical um, types of portrayals that we all grew up with, whether in television shows or cartoons, you know, I didn't begin to see the truth of the racial terror that existed and that was enforced and supported. Um, by, you know, our court systems, our policing, our military um, against Native folks, Chinese folks, Black folks, Mexicans, um, uh, until uh, 
Pepecita Martinez, 500 Years of Chicano History. When I was in high mm-hmm. school, I read that and wrote a book report about it. Later in life, I got to read a little more in depth um, in Medicine of Memory by Alejandro, Alejandro Murguia. Um, and so I'm curious about how much, you know, I hear you with regards to your job as um, a fiction writer not being so much the telling of history, but I'm curious about how much you, you delve into that history of racial terror that, as you say, uh, so many of us in this country uh, have have so little exposure to given um, the very purposeful effort to hide that history from us in schools. And, uh, you know, and, and of course, some folks are very terrified in the current moment about the possibility of revealing those histories and calling it, you know, some uh, critical race theory, boogeyman uh, mm. effort to indoctrinate children. I'm wondering if you could speak to how much you dive into that history of racial terrorism that existed in the gold rush. Roberta, thanks. Pam? Um, so I certainly, as I said, during my research process, spent time reading not those two particular books, though I'm very curious about them, but certainly other books about, you know, the long history of violence. And I will say, you know, there was also a period when I was like deeply depressed and had to sort of like put the work of the book away because it was so overwhelming. In fact, actually, every time I finished a draft of this book because of this sort of naked violence against the Chinese American family at its core and against other um, marginalized peoples in the books, I would find myself falling because the emotions were just so intense. And I say that, you know, we do have to teach history because otherwise we are doomed to repeat it. But something else I want to remind anyone listening who, you know, comes from a marginalized population with this sort of like dark history in the United States is that remember that we are more than that trauma. We are also joy. And we are also these private stories that, again, went unrecorded by people in power and that those stories and those kinds of stories are just as important, if not more important, to keep telling ourselves and keep telling the wider world than the stories of trauma. Um, And I'll just say that again, because that matters so much to me, is that we are more than our trauma. And it's I think that's one amazing thing that in addition to historical nonfiction texts that fiction writers can bring to life on the page. Like for example, for me, for this family in my novel, it was really important to me that um, you know, they had their own family legends, their own family mythology, and they even have their own sort of family language that is this like beautiful mix of English and Pigeon Mandarin that my own family kind of spoke growing up and that I had never seen in a book and that I, I hope brings some delight to anyone who knows the joys of a private language in a family. Yeah, I remember being struck by something you said, Pam, where when you were writing about some of the worst experiences and the trauma that this family was experiencing, that that you wondered if you were, you know, being like overly dramatic or maudlin in this sense, but that when you actually studied and looked more closely at the historical research, you realized that you were spot on, or it was even worse than than what you depicted in some instances, which is such a disturbing thing to think about. Mimi Locke, one of the things I was struck by was that you really noticed that the book doesn't use the words Chinese or California in the book. And and you feel like by doing that, it almost makes the racism and 
xenophobia even more stark? How did it do that for you? Yes, I think this was such a an interesting decision. And Pam, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about this as well. Um, uh, I think it was I think it, I can't remember at what point in reading the book I noticed this, but yeah, the the, the things that you would go into somewhat ex expecting of a historical novel and a novel that centers Chinese American experiences, one would expect to see the words China, Chinese, or white, or California in this case, and they don't appear anywhere in the book. And so stripped of those typical markers of place and race and ethnicity, it had this effect of heightening the a couple of different aspects of Lucy and Sam and Ba's experience. Uh, one is just the absurdity of racism. And also, secondly, the sense that of, of Lucy and Sam in particular, their resistance against the constraints imposed upon them by society. And it really just kind of, I think it just really, uh, this, this absence of these typical markers, these indicators of identity, they really helped to sort of underline the kind of mythic quality and the mythic authority of this story being told. And I yes. thought that was just really, unusual and that's one of the examples of of um elegant subversiveness that comes to mind for me when i think about this book yes i, I loved that point that you made because stripped of those markers as you say place and ethnicity and so on you can just focus on the effect and the effect is so visceral and so terrible and you can connect with it it also almost even though we know that it's the gold rush period it erases time because the years aren't specifically laid out. And and so mm -hmm. typically we'd be like, oh, yeah, people back then, right? This is how they were and treated people of different races and ethnicities. And you almost excuse it. But without allowing for that, the absurdity, as you say, to use your word, Mimi Locke, um, becomes mm -hmm. much clearer. Tomlin, Mimi was talking about how Pam did not use certain typical markers of identification. And one of those things, uh, of course, as you've talked about, was that Pam did not use pronouns for Sam for, for some time. And we don't learn for a while a lot about Sam, that Sam and, um, and Lucy are sisters. I'm wondering what your reaction was to that, what you feel like that did to the reader. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a kind of fantastic, you know, bit of sleight of hand. Um, I think, I don't, I don't think you see a pronoun for Sam until um, maybe a dozen or so pages in, and that might even be a conservative guess. Um, and I think what it does is it, it kind of, you know, when you see that first pronoun, for me at least, I felt suddenly um, almost a little destabilized. I think what, what happens is you are kind of lulled into this sense of, you know, you've got this kind of hypnotic rhythm of the present tense always coming over you. And when, when you finally see that first pronoun for Sam, um, you have to go back and you have to rethink kind of all the things that you have read up to that point and kind of reconfigure it. And I think one of the, the motions that that affects in the reader is this kind of feeling of the performance of gender and that, that, that gender is, is always um, something that is continuously lived and expressed. Um, and to have that uh, kind of, you know, almost, almost a, a non-binary 
um, recreation in language, you know, in especially in English, which only has these two pronouns, um, you know, he and she, and then we have this, we have the, um, the, the third person pl um, plural, they, that we also use in singular, but, but our language is clunky when it comes to expressing these nuances of, of gender. And so to have Sam kind of pop in and out of these different gender modalities, um, and, and, you know, and throughout the, throughout the book kind of following Sam as they go through these, these different performances and, 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 you know, stabilizing their choice, uh, I, I found it totally, um, I mean, it was, it was mind bending in a very satisfying way. Um, it's a kind of like, uh, seeing how you approach a book, get, um, reflected back at you and then to, and then to have you kind of think about that, I think is the effect of, of that, um, the, the lack of pronouns for Sam. Yes. And, and really forces you too to look at yourself and question your own assumptions and why you came up with those assumptions. And yeah, exactly. There's a lot there. Um, well, a couple more comments from listeners. This listener writes, I'm not a Chinese speaker. And throughout the book, there was Chinese that wasn't translated. I wondered about that choice. I could understand what was happening, but not perfectly. Was that purposeful? Pam, Pam Zhang, do you want to respond to this listener's question? Yes, definitely. Um, you know, we've been talking a lot about sort of like centering the Chinese experience. And I, I wanted that. I wanted that sort of that almost Easter egg, to use a video game term, that Easter egg feeling for um, somebody from a Mandarin-speaking Chinese diaspora to feel like, this is me, this is my family, this is our private joy and our private family on the page that I have never seen before. And, you know, as an author, I was careful to make sure that the book still made sense, even if you didn't understand the Mandarin. But, you know, I think that I also believe that part of the beauty of, of reading a book, of engaging with a piece of fiction is to find a little bit of mystery, a little bit of, you know, it has to be the right dose, but a little bit of wonder and mystique in the world. And I think that, you know, growing up for so many years in California and having the experience, for example, of going into my favorite taqueria and, you know, hearing other people like Mexican immigrants in, in that restaurant speak Spanish to one another. Uh, more after the break. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. It's Forum Book Club. We're talking about this month's selection, How Much of These Hills is Gold, with author C. Pam Zhang. And Pam, just before the break, we got cut off. I'm sorry. You were talking about the experience of going into places and hearing the language spoken there and how that connects to your choice um, in your book to include Mandarin and not translate it. If you wanted to finish that thought. Yeah, I was just talking about magic wonderful experience of me as a non-Spanish speaker going to a taqueria, hearing Mexican immigrants and their families, you know, order and laugh and not being able to catch every word, certainly, but getting the gist and like sort of enjoying that experience of being a little bit of an outsider, but getting a glimpse into a set of other lives and wondering about them and the joy of that wonder. I wanted a little bit of that in my book as well. That feels so Californian to me. <laughs> 
And uh, Pam is joined by three other writers, Maylee Chai is Associate Professor of Creative Writing at San Francisco State University, author of the short story collection, Useful Phrases for Immigrants. Mimi Locke is with us, author of Last of Her Name, also founding director and executive editor of Voice of Witness, a nonprofit that amplifies marginalized voices through a book series. Tom Lin is with us, author of The Thousand Crimes of Ming Su, a recently published Western that has a Chinese gunslinger for a protagonist. You, our listeners, are with us sharing your thoughts, reactions to the conversation, and also to the book. If you read it, 866-733-6786 is the number, 866-733-6786, email address forum at kqed.org. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Evan writes, I agree that novelists and historians use different tools, but couldn't disagree more that they aim toward different targets. Good history is emotional, relatable, and relevant. When we reduce history to sterile facts, we neutralize its utility. Most students' last history class is in high school, amplifying the need to reform how history is taught if we are ever able to learn from the past. And Chiara writes, I am a lover of words, and I find Zhang's language arresting, heart-stoppingly brilliant. The landscape takes on a creative role as the eye-catching, soul-drenching beauty that is California. The dry yellow grass of the hills sways jackrabbit high a few miles outside of town. Wind imparts a shimmer like sun off soft metal. I should say that's a quote there. Uh, As readers, we have the privilege of watching her paint a creative picture on canvas with gorgeous precision. Pam Zhang, wow, what a lovely comment. But also, I I wanted to ask you to comment quickly. Tom was talking about how you did not use a pronoun for Sam for a long time. And I'm wondering how eliminating that for the first dozen or so pages of the book affected how you wrote it, the way you shaped your sentences and, and paragraphs. You know, in this book, I wanted to create a new mythology of the American West. And to do that, I think you have to, in some ways, create a new language. Um, So it was a challenge and it was a delight and it opened so many doors for me. And, you know, I think that to, to sort of try to portray Sam with the limits of our language and all of Sam's multiplicity and complexity and wonder was was it was something that made me grow so much as a writer and also I felt like I just had to give Sam that due to give them the chance to announce themselves for who they are by the way they act the way they talk um, the way they move through the world before putting that tiny little label of of a gendered pronoun on them. Bailey you were really struck by the the writing the craft the the short sentences for you how did it connect to to an immigrant family and how immigrant families speak. Oh, I loved what Pam said about creating a new language. Um, And I feel like, and also things that are untranslated, this is something that deeply inspired me and my students. This is Mm -hmm. what it feels like to be in an immigrant family. There's things that aren't quite understood. There's um, a language, you know, a pigeon version of perhaps of a mother tongue. And then you have your own stories. I love how she created this mythic family California story with tigers and the mother even draw, they even draw these maps where the tigers are in California. Um, And it lives in the children's imagination and it lives in the reader's imagination. And it gives us permission 
to center, we think and think about our own family stories. And, it, and I just, I love how elegantly she does this. Pam, you have said in interviews that you lost your father a couple years before writing this book. And while we are on the topic of craft, um, I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about how writing this book was connected at all to your own grieving process? Yeah. Um, and I know you didn't say this, but I do want to say, because I think it's too often said that I don't think writing fiction is a cathartic form. I don't think it is, you know, a tool to process grief, but at the same time, you know, earlier on the show, I was talking about how a fiction writer can perhaps give um, the stories of a sort of lost lost members of history, a second life. And I think in many ways, that is something I was trying to do um, for, mm -hmm. for my father or the idea of a father, because I think so many children of immigrants, particularly, never get the chance to fully understand their parents. Um, it, there's a lot of this, we don't really have that, that you know, that legacy of, of speaking openly about our parents' past. And so sometimes it is in my case, the work of the imagination to fill in the blanks. Tomlin, what was your reaction to a moment in the book when the father, Ba, really takes over as the narrator? Yeah, I think um, having finally access to Ba's internality, you know, after um, all of these other pages of, of kind of trying to guess at it and trying to assign motivations and, and beliefs and, and um, kind of, you know, feelings to this, to this mysterious character who, when we enter the story, he has died. Um, it really feels almost like it, it feels in part like a resurrection and, and in part like um, almost like an auto eulogy, like he's eulogizing himself. And I thought that was really remarkable um, to kind of bring in a character who, you know, you've gone through this book so far, um, viewing him in memory. And one of the words that, that, that Ba uses a lot in his, in his own narration is this, um, this, this neologism that, that Pam has coined, um, rememory, which I think is, is a really kind of beautiful, um, quick linguistic way of, of capturing the, the kind of the ghostly images of, of something that you're supposed to remember but can't quite, or, or memory that comes to you um, unwanted. And I think Ba's narration, um, which is, I think, a little shorter than the other sections, but, but that, it has that kind of feeling. It seems almost out of, out, outside of time, outside of the narrative of the story. Um, and to kind of have that coming in so late in the game and after so much, um, you know, approximation and, and guesswork on the part of the reader, I think, is, is ultimately very satisfying. Um, but also in a way, you know, it, it, it's troubling and, and, and it's moving. Yeah. Uh, Mimi, I think you and I may have had the same reaction to the opportunity to get to know Bob better at this point, because, mm -hmm. you know, really throughout the book, he's, he's really mean <laughs> and abusive oh, yeah. from Lucy's <laughs> perspective. I mean, he, he says words that she's something, but he treats her like she's nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think this is, um, this is just a great demonstration of the empathy and imagination that Pam mentioned and I think as writers Tom and Maylie and myself that we're all occupied with um, is to for is, is to apply that rigor of empathy and imagination 
to all of our characters and particularly characters that are easy to flatten into a um uh, a villain or another kind of othering and so to have that opportunity to take a couple of steps back into the story but also into someone's perspective who it would have been easy and maybe more comfortable for the reader maybe for the writer as well Pam maybe you can speak about this to uh, to otherwise just keep um, at a certain arm's length so um, so yeah I thought I found it completely um, it, it just really helped to reframe the rest of the book and for us to not not necessarily question um, Lucy or Sam's memory or rememory of their father but it just helped to remind us that stories are always broader and more complex than than we ever think they are and that there are always stories that aren't told um, even in something that feels as, as rich and authoritative as um, as the as stories that we we tell ourselves in which we are the protagonist. Well, Alana tweets, I haven't finished the book yet, but I think many people only have a side view of Chinese immigrants through the lens of Steinbeck to compare a similar time frame. This is a fantastic focus on these two children and yet gives us a picture of the time, the culture and the shift that immigrants experience as they adapt to and adopt their new world. Pam, I'm wondering, after hearing the panel's reflections on on giving your dad multiple dimensions or, or more dimension than at the beginning. I, I couldn't help but wonder if if the opportunity, giving readers the opportunity to reimagine Ba was connected in some way to reimagining the place of Asian Americans in U.S. history as well. Mm-hmm, certainly. You know, I think um, one of my favorite pieces of, of feedback that I have ever gotten about this book was a young Asian American woman who wrote in to tell me that after reading my book and listening to the Mitski album, now when she hears the word cowboy, she imagines an Asian woman striding across the American West. And I was just like, <laughs> you know, I like leapt out of my chair because that's that's what I want. I, I really want us to open the door to these other ways of imagining that so that not everyone when you hear the word cowboy thinks of like you know a swaggering Clint Eastwood type character that's so boring we should all have so many different images in our head that come up right not just Clint Eastwood but a Chinese American cowboy or a black cowboy um, or a transgender cowboy or, or whatnot that's just so much more fun yeah well Mike writes in the Sierra Mountains there is a town simply called Forest there is a saloon there with photos still on the walls and more in boxes among the photos I saw there was not a single Asian face but at the edge of town is a cemetery with dozens of headstones containing only Chinese characters I imagine these forgotten miners living and laboring outside of the white gold rush community, maybe drinking whiskey that gouges their wallets and throats. An old story, some celebrate and live lives whose stories are told, others forgotten. Wow, our listeners are really 
weighing in with some beautiful comments as we talk about how much of these hills is gold with author C. Pam Zhang, with Meili Chai, Associate Professor of Creative Writing at San Francisco State University, Mimi Locke, author of Last of Her Name, and Tom Lin, author of The Thousand Crimes of Ming Tu. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The epigraph of your book, Pam, is this land is not your land. And before I have you talk about it, I'm actually going to go back to our panel quickly. And I wanted to ask what their reaction was to that epigraph, this land is not your land, and how they define land that is, how they define a sense of home. And, and if I could start with you, Meili Chai. Sure. I felt like that epigraph was really welcoming. It was, I mean, if you, if you love that, then you know you're going to love this book, right? Because it talks to the sense of displacement that many immigrants and children of immigrants have because we don't see our images in Hollywood, for example, or in the history books. And so when I saw that, I thought, oh, this book is going to speak to me and, and to that sense of, well, where is home? If it's not here, where is home? Or maybe can I create that home? So I thought I saw it as an opening. Mm. What about you, Tom? I, th I think the, um, the way that the, you know, Sam and Lucy try to find a place that they belong, I think is, is really something that reminded me a lot of, of just even just growing up. Um, Cause I think you don't really, you don't really end up questioning whether or not you belong somewhere until you've experienced the unfairness of feeling like you're home and being told that you aren't. And I think it's that kind of, that disconnect between feeling as though you ought to belong and, and kind of hearing that you, that you can't, that I think gets um, continuously reenacted as Sam and Lizzie are going through this, this California that seems to construct itself around them, you know, and, and fall, fall back into um, obliteration as soon as they leave these places. Um, you know, these, these kinds of landscapes that are described in almost uh, a dreamlike cadence. Uh, I think it, it really struck me the way that, I think the question of belonging is central to, to this book. And at the end, without giving anything away, um, what you get is not, it's not a confirmation of belonging, but rather a confirmation of self-determination. And I think that that as an answer to the question of whether or not you can belong somewhere, even when people don't uh, you know, tell you that you can't, I think is a really novel and, and fascinating approach to, to staking a claim on somewhere that um, you're rejected from is is to go there and be able to exercise self-determination. Have the events of the last year and a half, Tom, affected your sense of belonging here? I mean, absolutely. It's it's hard to read all these news stories and and not be shaken. Um, my mother lives in New York City, and um, you know she calls me a lot um, to to kind of to to worry. Um, and sometimes she'll call me as she's walking back to her car after work. Um, and I don't know, you know, what the contingency plan is if she does get attacked. Um, but I think it's, I, th I think we're kind of doing community in the face of fear. And I think that is one of the most powerful things that you can do is, is, you know, reach out to your friends and family and, and show that you're all pulling for each other and you're all on the same side. Um, but I think, you know, I, it, I didn't have a, a belief that, that, Chinese Americans were totally accepted in America and, and you know, only in the last two years have, have has this rise in anti-Asian hate crimes like re-rejected us. I think we've always been other, we've always been outside. Um, and 
almost like um, you know moon cycles or, or the tides, uh, racial animus rises and, and subsides, but it never truly goes away. Pam, there's a, a line in your book that what Tom is saying reminds me of so much that I feel like I have to read it. It's when Boss says to Lucy, stand long enough under open sky in their parts and a curious thing happens. At first the clouds meander aimless, then they start to turn, swirling toward you at their center. Stand long enough and it isn't the hills that shrink, it's you that grows, like you could step over and reach the distant blue mountain if you so chose, like you were a giant and all this, your land. Do you think, and I'm sure it wasn't expected, and we just have a minute left, that your book in some ways was like almost an answer to what we've seen show its ugly face in the last year and a half? Yes, I want Asian Americans, I want all of us to feel like this this is our land. But I also think that one of the beautiful parts of being an American is that no one is fully stable here, right? We're all immigrants or colonizers. You can walk into different major cities and different rural areas and find a different culture. And that's scary. And it can be terrifying. And it can, it's it's also what makes America, America. So um, I, I don't know. Well, thank you for this book, Pam. <laughs> it was such a pleasure yeah. to read. Thank you for having me. And thank you to this incredible all-star panel that makes me feel so amazing about the future of Asian American literature, Asian American thinkers. Just thank you all. See Pam Zhang. The book is How Much of These Hills is Gold. Thank you to Mei Li Chai. Thank you to Mimi Locke. Thank you to Tomlin. Tomlin is author of The Thousand Crimes of Ming Su. Mimi Locke, author of Last of Her Name. Mei Li Chai, author of the short story collection Useful Phrases for Immigrants. Thank you also to our listeners for their questions and comments and reflections on the book and history. And my thanks to Grace Wan for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. 
New episodes of Soul to Story are available now.